0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. I'm back in the studio after a week out well beyond Wi-Fi. A big thanks to John Kampfner for hosting the show last week. On this edition, we'll be turning to China first to discuss the anti-lockdown protest sweeping the cities of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. What does it tell us about China's response to COVID? How serious are they for... Xi Jinping's legitimacy so soon after the party conference, and do they point to wider problems that lie ahead for China, which faces a slowing economy and rising youth unemployment. We're also going to be turning our attention to North Korea and the security threat it continues to pose. 2022 so far has been a record year for its ballistic missile launches, two in November. How far has the nuclear program and the missiles developed, and what does it mean for the country's neighbors? Well, joining me to answer all these questions, lots of them, and actually more appearing by the moment, I've got Ben Bland, the director of our Asia Pacific program. Hi, Ben.
1: Great to be with you, Bronwyn.
0: Great to have you here. And I'm glad to say we also have returning to this podcast, Dr. Yu Jie, a senior research fellow with the Asia program who's having an exceptionally busy week. Well, Brahman, really delighted to return here. Thank you very much indeed. And I am delighted that joining us down the line from Washington is Ankit Panda, the Stanton Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he's also editor at large for The Diplomat magazine and has written and advised widely on North Korea. Welcome, Ankit.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation to be here
0: today. I'm delighted to have you. Well, look, let's plunge straight in all kinds of things um, happening in China. The protests have been gripping everyone. But Yujia, I wonder if you could just bring us up to date.
3: Right. Uh, three things in here. As of today, uh, we just noticed that, um, the, the state council, the Chinese state council dropped the term zero COVID. That for me is a major U-turn, um, considering the events had happened over the last weekend. So clearly the Chinese government realized the anger and the frustration of the Chinese public is really beyond anyone's belief at this stage. Now, secondly, I think there's also a background to a bigger question is, the government cannot use the excuses of protecting everyone's life at expenses of rob everyone's personal wealth. I mean, that's exactly what zero COVID strategy has caused the damage of many others. Now, thirdly, it is, well, the Chinese government made an announcement that still encouraging foreign direct investment, still encouraging foreign visitors to visit China but with the borders been closed in the last three years, and for me, this seems to be the words and these doesn't match
0: at all. The words have gone. Zero COVID. Has the policy gone? Um,
3: I think gradually the policy will have to, to go. The problem is now for Xi Jinping is how to make that U-turn. As we know that all smart leaders know how to make U-turns. So hopefully he would have the political audacity to know when is the right time to persuade its population to live together with this virus.
0: Can you explain to us why a country that can pretty much force everyone to stay at home mm-hmm. has not been able to get everyone vaccinated?
3: Well, three things in here again. Um, firstly, is the lack of clear communication from the scientific community regarding why the Chinese people need to take this vaccination. Considering the infection rate in the past two years are extremely low in single digits. So there's no incentive among the public to taking vaccination. Secondly, particularly for the most vulnerable groups that... The Chinese government didn't run a vaccination campaign at all, just let it happen very naturally. Now, certainly, this is to do with the societal behaviour of the Chinese elderly. They are very risk averse. So if they have a tiny little bit problem, they will run after the hospital. And by the way, they, the social health care in China for urban citizens are free. So they will run to the hospital, and hence, they're so afraid by taking this vaccine, the side effect will taking over any other
0: things. Were you surprised at how explosive these protests have become
3: i wasn't surprised at all because i mean i think after what happened in spring in shanghai and that sense of anger and frustration and agony has been shared among quite most uh, most part of the chinese society so i think for me that seems to be something inevitable but obviously Given what had happened in Xinjiang uh, last Friday, and that was really the key trigger, and let people felt perhaps next day will be their turn, and their life will be under threat because of this very um, non-scientific um, COVID measures.
0: And, and of course, we haven't got into the question of why the, the China, uh, Chinese vaccine isn't, isn't quite as uh, working quite as well as, as others. But I wondered, looking at some of the comments coming out of China, whether the, the, the watching the football in Qatar had even possibly been a further enraging factor. People saying, look, it seems like the rest of the world is on a different planet. They're not wearing masks. Ben, how big a deal is this for the Chinese leadership?
1: I think it's quite a significant challenge if they can't manage to shift their COVID policy, because right now it's clear that a major motivating factor for most people is the restrictions on their livelihoods, the effect that's having on the economy, as UJ was saying. But obviously, if the government isn't able to shift its policy, either by a U-turn or some sort of crab-like walk to the side where they shift things over time, then the risk is that frustration over the COVID policy expands into a deeper sense that the government is not fulfilling its social contract to deliver economic benefits for people um so i think that's got to be the big risk which is why there is a pressure on the government to shift policy but i think it's going to be hard for officially to do a u-turn uh, of the sort that we're quite used to experiencing because he's spent the last couple of years you know trying to argue that the chinese approach of dynamic covid zero as they call it is you know sets an example to the world that Chinese authoritarian system can do things that democratic governance can't. So to shift is going to be difficult and I think it can only likely happen in fits and starts. But if they don't do that, then the pressure is going to build and build and build and represent more of a direct challenge to the party's authority.
3: And socially, they are really in the between the rock and the hard place. You know, one way you, you want to open up the society, but on the other hand, is the per- population prepared to have this huge number of exit wave.
0: Ankit, what's the view from Washington? We're hearing a lot from the Biden administration about wanting to be tougher on China. We've heard that for some time, but also wanting allies uh, in NATO to be tougher on China.
2: So right now with these protests, I think the administration is taking a wait and see approach, and it's rather cautious in what they're saying publicly. And for good reason, I would argue. Uh, One of the early narratives that the Chinese state has tried to establish is that hostile foreign forces are involved in stoking these protests, which is, of course, uh, absurd on its face. But the administration is aware of this, and they're trying to avoid feeding into that narrative at the same time that the Biden administration, of course, has been talking about a values-based foreign policy, emphasizing democracy. Uh, The other bit of context here is after the precipitous decline in U.S.-China ties, after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, um, the administration sensed that they had the opportunity to sort of right the ship after the in-person meeting between President Xi and Biden in Bali, uh, just a couple of weeks before these protests. So I think they're quite wary about um, putting a wrong foot forward here, potentially, uh, and, and and jeopardizing that that progress that has uh, taken place in the bilateral relationship. The NATO piece, I think, is more interesting, right? We had a, a new strategic concept that recognizes China uh, as a systemic challenge for the alliance. But, of course, it's a 30-member alliance and views on China within the alliance could not be more diverse. And so there's there continues to be, I would say, a patchwork within NATO of how various members uh, view the China challenge and their opinions on how the transatlantic alliance should actually be Changing what it's doing to, to, to help manage the China challenge. Uh, and of course, all of this is happening against the backdrop uh, of an actual war in Europe, which was, of course, uh, focused NATO directly on its doorstep. Uh, but longer term, I think we will see the alliance grappling with what exactly it will mean to compete more forcefully with China in the Indo-Pacific.
0: Yes, and we're hearing quite a bit about uh, the US wanting NATO allies almost as explicitly as a quid pro quo for what it's supplying to Ukraine to join it in being tougher on China. In fact, we had David Miliband, the former foreign secretary, talking at Chatham House this week. And this is what he had to say on the China and the UK's policy.
4: And what I see um, across the West, actually, the European Union did this. Now the Americans have adopted it. Um, I think it would have been helpful if the prime minister had said it last night. There are areas where the relationship between the West and China has, that there are red lines of both sides, and it's important for those red lines to be clear. There are areas where there is competition, and that competition can be fair or it can be unfair. And then there are areas where there is necessary cooperation. And climate would be an example, health pandemics would be a, a, an example as well. I served on something called the International Panel on um, Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Uh, There's no future safeguard against pandemics that doesn't involve engagement with um, uh, China. Now, my concern over the last couple of years has been that that third area of cooperation is going to be close to zero. Actually coming out of the last G20 meeting, the the commitment, and John Kerry deserves a lot of credit for this, the the determination of the Americans now to engineer a conversation with China about the climate issue I think is is positive. And so I I find that three-part distinction. There are areas of potential confrontation where red lines are important, there are areas of competition, and then there are areas of uh, cooperation. I think that's the way to try and sort out a multifaceted relationship with China that recognizes its own distinctive place in the global uh, system.
0: And that was in the context of the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, saying that Britain would be taking a tougher line on China, something that I'm, I'm sure we're going to explore in future podcasts, what that actually means. Ben, this wait-and-see uh, position that uh, Ankit's been describing, um, what do you think people in other countries, in other governments are watching, are waiting for at this point? In, in
1: terms of China? Yes. In terms of the Well, I I think there's an economic question here for much of the rest of Asia because their economies are deeply, deeply integrated into China's. So China being closed off from the world means that it's stemmed the flow of investment out of China. It stemmed the flow of tourists um, into economies all around the region. And for the last few years before COVID, um, we saw many parts of Asia kind of retool key parts of their economy to be open to Chinese tourists. There were huge casinos built on the border with Laos, um, big tourist uh, focused resorts, focused on Chinese tourists in Vietnam, Indonesia, elsewhere. And we've just you know, seen, obviously, those tourists haven't returned um, in the last few years. And that's, that's quite a problem for the rest of the region. I think also in terms of political communication, um, the lack of uh, travel for Chinese academics, uh, Chinese officials, makes it harder to communicate. I was recently in Vietnam at a big South China Sea conference they organize every year. And there were participants from all around the region, from Europe, from America. But the Chinese participants were only engaging virtually, and it definitely made it harder to communicate with them on obviously what's a pretty challenging diplomatic issue given what's been going on in the South China Sea in the last few years.
0: Yujia, we're beginning to hear a lot about decoupling, China decoupling from the world, this being something the leadership wants to be more self-sufficient and so on. Can it do this at the same time as contain these these protests, or are they very much part part of a piece?
3: Well, I think it's very difficult because, I mean, looking at those people who participate in the protest and they're mostly aged between um, 20 to 40. I mean, this is a generation that grown up in the golden age of the China embracing globalization. I mean, look at what happened today where the pathway of President Jiang Zemin, the reason why people commemorate him is not just commemorate him as a person, but also commemorate him as an icon somehow who embrace the globalization within China. That brings an enormous amount of economic and also society benefits to this generation who stood up within the protest this week.
0: And we've heard this week that Jiang Zemin has has died, age um, 96, I believe. What impact does that have? As you said, the symbol of, of this opening up?
3: Well, interestingly, I mean, he, he, he was born on the same year as Her Majesty and also died on the same year as Her Majesty. Um, people will always remember he is someone who's very urban and who's really willing to speak to Westerners and also, especially the Western journalists and speaking very confidently. So that offered a positive image for China in the last 20 years or so in terms of reform and opening up. Now, we all question whether the current leadership will be able to take in that button and continue to write that line. But judging by the signals on the 20th Party Congress we have discussed in the past, that seems to be now the signal seems to be more ambivalent that on certain sectors, especially on science and technology, and China decisively turn inward. Now, on the vaccination, I think part of the reason why China has vehemently refused to use mRNA vaccination is that matter of self-reliance because Beijing consider vaccination is a critical infrastructure, hence has to be in the hands of Chinese itself.
0: Really, really interesting point. Ankit, from where you're sitting, um, how realistic do you think it is for the US to decouple from China, we're hearing a lot about it in in rhetoric and so on. But you know, sitting in Britain, we can see uh, the British government buying out um, a, a small slice, a hundred million pounds worth of a, of a stake in a um, an unbuilt, um, half built nuclear power station, and beginning to talk about Chinese students and universities and stuff. But you know, the, the sense of China being so integrated into our economies is very hard to get away from.
2: It's hard to get away from overnight, I would say, but I think longer term, we are beginning to see the signs in a in a bipartisan way, I would also add in the United States of uh, of a broader interest in decoupling and reducing reliance on China. The U.S. is also encouraging its allies and partners to do this, of course, recognizing that, as, as Ben underscored, uh, it's a very different picture uh, in the Indo-Pacific itself. So developments like the CHIPS Act, the focus on semiconductors in particular as a critical technology for the United States, I think illustrate this best, but I think over time, we will begin to see um, this this broader trend line of decoupling that began under the Trump administration uh, begin to take hold in the United States. It's, I, I just think it's simply going to be another feature of long-term systemic competition between the United States and China, and there's just simply too much political support at this point. While parts of the business community uh, in the United States continue to see problems with decoupling, uh, I do think over the long term, uh, the, the political tide uh, has shifted in a way that will ensure that the U.S. and China do continue down this trend line.
1: Yeah, just to inject a few notes of, of caution and some, a bit of uh, dissent here maybe from Ankit, I would say rather than asking are the US and China decoupling, I would ask, which sectors of the economy might decouple, and I think it might be more more limited for a couple of further reasons. One, it's really hard to disentangle the modern supply chains we have, and the U.S. and China and the rest of the world in China. The manufacturing has become so integrated, and an iPhone is basically a Chinese-made product with American design. How do you disentangle that? And then the last point I would say is, is the costs, right? So it's fine now to push sort of industrial policy at the early stage. Um, but further down the line, if decoupling is going to move into more and more sectors, someone's going to have to pay for that. And that's either going to be you know, higher taxes and subsidies or higher costs for consumer goods. And I think it's not clear that yet that the American public, let alone the British or the South Korean or anyone else, are willing to bear these higher costs.
2: That's yeah, that's I think that's an important corrective. And also, you know, as we as we head into a more difficult economic climate here in the United States and globally in 2023, I think this is going to be one of the areas to really watch for is how much appetite will there be to sustain decoupling when economic times do continue to become tougher and tougher.
0: People probably don't have a lot from directly from Russia in their houses other than oil and gas. They are obviously doing that that pushes up the price. But if you're talking about everything from children's toys to iPhones costing many times as much. That is, um, that is a very hard decision. Well, let's use that as a pivot to talk about uh, a country and an economy with which very few countries have any degree of coupling other than, um, one might argue, China. Um, North Korea, uh, the Missile and Nuclear Weapons Programme continues to grow. And in the most recent test on November 18th, A ballistic missile fired from North Korea landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. That's the zone 200 kilometers from its shoreline where it claims sovereign rights. And that follows a spate of tests that make 2022 the most prolific year for North Korea in terms of missiles, with regular reports that the North may be planning another nuclear test. Ankit, can you tell us what we should make of it?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing to say is that, you know, 2022 has been unprecedented just in the intensity of North Korean launch activity. Uh, I try to keep a spreadsheet where I, where I count missile launches. And uh, after after this month, uh, November 2022, it's just become it's just become completely uh, impossible to keep track of the precise number of missiles that North Korea has been launching. Uh, and so the other point I would emphasize is that where in the past, the word test was the most appropriate noun to use to describe most North Korean missile launches. That's no longer true. Uh, the, in fact, the majority of North Korean launches this year have been operational exercises. Uh, and, and in the latter part of the year in particular, they've been responses to uh, activities carried out by the United States and South Korea, as the North Koreans have pointed out. So we're beginning to, I think, enter a new phase in North Korea's development of its missile capabilities. Uh, quantitatively, their missile forces are larger than they've ever been. In qualitative terms, they're more sophisticated and more diverse and more survivable than they've ever been. Uh, and, and the North Koreans continue to ensure that that should deterrence fail and should a conflict break out on the Korean peninsula, that they'll have the ability to use these missile capabilities, including nuclear-capable missiles, uh, to, uh, to tactical and strategic effect. That's really what they've been working towards uh, throughout the bulk of this year.
0: And the significance of this incursion on Japan's economic zone, uh, those waters around Japan, the first time North
2: Korea uh, launched a ballistic missile into Japan's exclusive economic zone was in late 2016. Uh, and since then, unfortunately, it's become a mainstay, particularly as they've started to test longer range missiles. Uh, so this, this recent test that you cited uh, was of an intercontinental range ballistic missile. The North Koreans shortened the range of such a missile to just a few hundred kilometers by launching it at an incredibly steep trajectory, sending it thousands of kilometers uh, above the Earth's atmosphere and simply landing it back down in the Sea of Japan. And so in this case, the uh, that missile did come down in Japan's econo- uh, exclusive economic zone. Uh, the problem, of course, is the North Koreans do not pre-notify uh, the international community of these launches, like other countries that carry out missile launches. Uh, so it does represent a risk to civil aviation, to maritime traffic. Uh, and so the Japanese government uh, protests uh, prominently after after any such North Korean demonstration. But the unfortunate reality is that uh, since 2016, the North Koreans have simply started doing this uh, quite regularly. Uh, and Tokyo really has had very little uh, to offer in the way of deterring uh, such North Korean demonstrations.
0: Yujia, how does China look at this? Is it alarmed by this or does it this actually suit it?
3: Well, I think China has been extremely alarmed and also annoyed considering um, North Korea is one of the major recipients for Chinese um, foreign aids, firstly. Secondly is by having a very annoying neighbour not tell exactly what they've been doing. Um, I think the uh, statement made by Xi Jinping when he met Oliver Schultz and also when he met President Biden, um, while well, he's talking about denouncing the use and also the threat of use of nuclear weapons, I think it's not only pointed towards Russia, but also simply Xi Jinping wants to send a very stern warning to North Korea as well, do not entertain such idea of the utility of nuclear weapons in here. So that's one layer. Now, secondly, um, at the end of the day, I think it's because of that very particular geography that led to into North Korea's position towards China very special. So ultimately, what China really wanted is to have North Korea as a, remain as a buffer state irrespective of what happened within in, in the inter, entire peninsula. So, No matter what the bad behavior North Korea will continue to do, then Beijing will still have to offer the bread and butter, the bloodline, the economic bloodline for North Korea. Now, and also, as you're describing it, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a situation in some Mm -hmm. sense that China
0: could control.
3: In some sense, China can control, but then on the other hand, I think China also fear that if, um, if the certain, um, natural disaster or famine would happen within North Korea has already happened, that the large number of asylum seekers were flooded into Manchuria, part of China, then that would really cause economic damage for northern part of China as well, which is already has been much deprived, de- deprived
0: by, by many other factors. Ben, if you're sitting in Seoul or elsewhere in the region, uh, an annoying neighbour or something even more alarming?
1: Obviously, for, for for South Korea, it's it's a very different situation, and and for Japan too and um, we've seen you know both those countries the leadership try and rally support so recently in, in Bangkok on the back of one of the big summits there there was a meeting between South Korean and Japanese leaders with four of the five eyes the UK Prime Minister was, was not there because they weren't invited it was an Asia Pacific summit but but the other the other four Canada US Australia and New Zealand met with the South Korean Japanese leaders to kind of jointly raise their concerns about this um, but what's interesting is that the concerns don't necessarily honestly necessarily shared widely across the region so Southeast Asia Asian countries in their recent summit uh, in Cambodia did have a note of caution um, about the missile launches and they said they were concerned, but, but ultimately they maintain diplomatic relations with North Korea and on the long list of security challenges they have, they don't see it as a top threat to Southeast Asia, they see it more as a sort of Northeast Asia, US and China problem so south korea and japan have tried over recent decades to get more support in other parts of asia for a united position but i think it's it's quite difficult and it underlines the point to which i think um, many countries in the global south more generally just don't see the world in black and white terms as we tend to do and they don't tend to have sort of pariah states so even though um, actually kim jong un's brother uh, he had him assassinated in malaysia using uh, exploiting an indonesian and a vietnamese woman Um, on malaysian soil and even after that it caused some tension in north korea malaysia relations for a while um but southeast asian nations didn't cut off their diplomatic ties which are quite limited anyway but they're they're still carrying on so i think they want to keep relations with all sides and that's not really helpful i mean ultimately if we want to move forward on this issue it would be good if they had a stronger voice but i guess they have enough of their own domestic problems and other security challenges to be dealing with
0: ankit this makes it sound almost stable um but uh, I, I was wondering, in your in your view, is it, and is it useful to ask what the North Korean leadership actually wants, or does that really not take us very far?
2: So on the issue of stability, uh, I would say that right now, uh, I don't see the two Korean uh, countries hurtling towards a direct conflict. Kim Jong-un this summer spoke of this idea of power for power. uh, And and what he meant by that, you know, the North Koreans sometimes have a poetic way of expressing their short-term intentions. And and what he really meant was that North Korea would proportionally keep up with the US-South Korea alliance in terms of demonstrations. So the unprecedented missile launches this month, uh, the North Koreans, took note of the fact that the US and South Korea had an unprecedentedly intense set of Air Force sorties in the course of the Vigilant Storm aerial exercise that took place earlier in November. And so lo and behold, they carried out an unprecedentedly intense spate of missile launches on November 4th to sort of make that point that the leader's proportionality directive was being followed to the letter. Um, but of course, when missiles are being launched, we we do have the risk of misperception, uh, accidents, uh, escalation through inadvertent means. I think the recent uh, and Ukrainian air defense missile incident in Europe, uh, where a Ukrainian missile landed on Polish soil, I think, reminded a lot of us that, you know, these these kinds of risks do simply manifest whenever missiles are being used in any conflict, be they sort of interceptors or even missile launches. And we've arguably seen some of this already with North Korea. One of their missiles, uh, I believe, uh, transgressed uh, the uh, the so-called maritime limit uh, between the two Koreas uh, and landed 57 kilometers off the South Korean coast. It's not clear to me if the North Koreans actually intended for that missile to land there was an old sort of soviet air defense missile that they were launching in that way so uh, you know miscalculation accidents i think are are still a real risk we also have a postural preference in both koreas for preemption which is just a traditionally Unstable arrangement when when two territorially contiguous adversaries have very strong incentives to preempt uh, in the course of a conflict. And then what is North Korea looking for? Uh, Look, I mean, right now, I think really since the collapse of US North Korea diplomacy in 2019 at the Hanoi summit uh, between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong Un. Uh, The North Koreans have been uh, inwardly oriented, uh, and right now they're in the process of a five-year plan of military modernization that Kim Jong-un outlined in January 2021. Uh, That modernization process is going quite well. The North Koreans have already qualitatively demonstrated that they've carried out many of the things that Kim Jong-un called for, the initial testing of hypersonic weapons, new long-range cruise missiles, this new intercontinental range missile that was just successfully flight tested earlier this month. All of that is contributing to a longer-term effort in North Korea to establish itself Uh, as a potent nuclear power, hoping perhaps to have more leverage the next time the North Koreans sit down with the United States, though I don't suspect that will be for a number of years right now. There is, of course, the geopolitical realignment uh, that we're seeing uh, in in Northeast Asia. The North Koreans have doubled down on their relations with Russia. They've recognized the breakaway um, provinces in Ukraine, for instance, uh, and and of course, they have significantly improved their relationship with China. uh, Although I do agree with Dr. Yu that there are certainly some, um, you know, there is a level of discomfort in Beijing with the kinds of activities that North Korea might be engaging in.
0: Ben, as I throw back to you then, your sort of almost picture of stability, and that's not in- incompatible completely with what Ankit has been describing, despite that very good point about the um, instability of two doctrines of, of preemption. Uh, we just We just wait for this to play out and hope China keeps control of it.
1: Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a key contradiction in China's position, as you was saying, that on the one hand, they might be a bit unnerved by some of the more extreme moves from Kim Jong-un. But on the other hand, kind of having the North Korean regime collapse and the flood of refugees or a unified pro-American Korea that goes right up to China's borders is also not in their interest. At the same time, I think they can't, although sometimes people talk about China as North Korea's allies, I don't think China can control Kim Jong-un. I'm not sure that, that anyone can. Um, so I think it's it's a really complex picture, but one thing I think we struggle with that many countries in Asia just acknowledge, is we like relationships based on trust and clarity, and lots of the diplomatic relationships in Asia and in large parts of the world are just based on mutual distrust. In a sense, that's the China-North Korea relationship, that's probably the China-Russia relationship, that's the China-Japan relationship. So it's not that people say what they want clearly and agree where the red lines are, but there's a degree of mutual distrust, and over the years people have worked out how to live with each other. On on a number of very problematic issues. Obviously, North Korea being one, maybe Taiwan being, being another. But, but like Ankit said, when sort of missiles are flying around, the risk of, of miscalculation is certainly rising.
0: Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly not zero. Yuji, you were nodding at this picture of the, the mutual distrust.
3: Mutual distrust, and also what we see in this triangle seems to be shifting that uh, Russia is now beginning to pivot, or getting even closer with North Korea. I think, again, considering both countries are sharing long borders with Beijing, and that would be considered, if Beijing can't handle well, that's probably going to be Beijing's biggest national security threat. It does not come from the United States, but it will come from the two nuclear powers that is going to impact China's own security within the Northeast Asia region more than anything else.
0: And just a tiny bit more on that tantalizing thought because um, these are both um, almost allies uh, or. Uh, um, that that China has been dealing with. We know it's been alarmed by what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Um, You think this this is something of of considerable concern to the Chinese leadership?
3: Well, I mean, judging by the joint statement, G20 has been put together and clearly Beijing is now looking for some kind of hook or itself can unhook from the um, so-called Beijing-Moscow alliance or alignment as such. But however, um, given the, the the most difficult things in here for Beijing is that by having a reasonably stable Russia, an anti-West Russia is really in China's interest. But whereas on the other hand, if we do have a Russia that has become more, pro- more pro-Western, and that has also become China's conundrum as well. So again, Beijing is now sitting in this um, conundrum in a very difficult choice to make.
0: Well, thank you for taking us almost back to the beginning. We started with the internal conundrums of facing the Chinese leadership and have come to the ones in the region. Um, may I thank you all very much, uh, Ben Bland, Yujiya and Ankit Panda. Thank you for joining us. And you can follow all of our speakers on Twitter, as well as all the work of our Asia Pacific program. Ankit also hosts, I'm, I'm going to mention this, the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics podcast, which I really recommend listening to. And you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media channels. And please do like, follow, subscribe, leave us a review. Um, I don't mind what it says. I really do want to hear from you. To read more from all our experts around the world and to find out more about our events, many of them every week, or to become a member, we'd love to have you. Don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, and you can follow all our work. This week alone, you could be able to find our work on Indonesia and the G20, all this that we've been discussing on China and that discussion with David Miliband and much, much more. See you next week.